welcome. I'm Connor Beaton, and this is The Man Talk Show, training for men and answers for women. Now, joining me today on this uh, very timely episode is Dr. Stephen DeVinge. And Stephen is a current senior lecturer at Manchester University in the United Kingdom. Uh, He specializes in philosophy. He did his undergraduate degrees in South Africa, uh, where he uh, did his bachelor, and then he did a master's uh, in the United States and a PhD in the UK, all within the realm of philosophy before taking up his post at Manchester, where he currently teaches. He taught at Rhodes University in South Africa and the University of Sheffield. So I wanted to have Stephen on the show because I came across this article a few weeks back called The Attraction of Apocalypse, The Philosophical Roots of Our of our Fascination with Catastrophe. And this was a, uh, an article that Stephen had written um, about a month before. And the article really dives into why we as human beings have this somewhat obsession and attraction to apocalyptic thinking and narratives and 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 why catastrophe plays such a big role in our life, whether it's catastrophic thinking, whether it's becoming, uh, you know, the consuming the type of news that many people do in our culture that are very catastrophic in nature and the way that they present situations and scenarios. They're very fear-based. And so Stephen sort of lays out his philosophy, his ideas around why we as human beings have uh, such a, an attraction to these forms. Uh, we talk about some of the current events and how it fits in with the, the philosophy of, of our attraction to the apocalypse. And we, we talk about um, just some of, the, some of the more interesting facets of uh, you know, the dark side of, of human beings and the philosophy, how philosophy sort of points towards it. And I think one of the most interesting things about this and one of the reasons why I wanted to have Stephen on the show was because of one of the main things in the article that I that I read, something that we talked about in this episode, is how apocalypse, uh, how our apocalyptic thinking and catastrophe thinking really plays into how we construct morality, both within our societies and within our individual lives. And I found that to be quite interesting that that we would you know, sort of move towards and use these these darker scenarios and darker experiences and darker historical events as a means of curating and cultivating our sense of morality within the world. And so uh, this episode really dives into some interesting avenues. And, uh, you know, I'm a little out of my element in this one. I'm not, you know, a studied philosopher. I don't have a PhD in philosophy. And so uh, I really trust Stephen to sort of guide this conversation, but I, I really enjoyed it. And so I hope that you do as well. I hope that you check out some of his work because it's quite interesting. Before I bring Stephen on, just a quick reminder for everyone that is out there, uh, men, especially if you are looking for a group of guys to work with right now, uh, I definitely recommend you check out the Man Talks Alliance. It's free right now for a month and you can try it out. We've got about 275 men in there uh, who are all active 
on a daily basis. There's some good challenges going on, uh, some good resources. You have your own team to connect with on a weekly basis. You have a group call that I lead on a weekly basis. Um, so there's some really, really good resources and some incredible men in there. So if you're interested in that, either head on over to at Mantox on Instagram and click the link in my bio for the Alliance, or you can go to connorbeaton.com and under the work with me section, you will see the Alliance there. So you can sign up today and I look forward to seeing you inside. Make sure that you introduce yourself off to me when you have signed up and signed in, um, because I would love to know a little bit more about you and your life and where you're at right now. Okay. So without any further delay, please welcome Dr. Stephen Devige. Thank you. It is a pleasure to have you here. I've, I've read uh, a good amount of your articles and some of your research, and I just I'm fascinated by the topics that you that you dive into, and uh, I feel like it's a good time to have this conversation, considering where the world is currently at. Um, but before we before we just sort of step into that the realm of, of philosophy, um, I'm gonna have to ask you the the question that I ask all my guests, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Well, I, th- I think I think it has to be when I left home at 18 to to go to university. I, I grew up. Uh, in a place called Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe in, in Central Africa or just Southern Central Africa. And, uh, I, I came from a very conservative home, uh, a home where my parents very much were supporters of the, the government, which was a minority white government. And, uh, at 18, I left to go to South Africa, which was also an apartheid state, but to a liberal university in the, uh, in, in the east, in the, in the, in the southeast called Rhodes University. And there, I, the world opened up to me. I met people I'd never met before. I'd read things I'd never read before. I, I, you know, I went down to do accountancy because my father wouldn't let me do uh, any Bachelor of Arts stuff. He thought that was uh, uh, not the appropriate thing for a man to do. Uh, you had to get a, a job that would support a wife, so to speak. So I went there, but I spent my time going to lectures on philosophy and psychology and English. I had a girlfriend who was doing English, so I went along to her lectures uh Killed two birds with one stone there. I was yeah, next to yeah. her and managed to get the lecture, and um, it just 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 changed the way I thought about things. And after three years of doing uh, an accountancy degree, I informed my father that I no longer wanted to do that. I was going to become a teacher, an educator. He was very angry. Uh, didn't speak to me for quite a while. Um, has come around now eventually, but uh, at the time he was pretty angry. And uh, I became a school teacher. Uh, taught accountancy and mathematics and, and English at uh, a black school in the area where I was going to university. Because in South Africa at the time, there were uh, an apartheid system where you had black and white schools. And so it was very rare for white people to teach in black schools. You had to get permission. But because I was teaching accountancy and maths and there was a shortage, they, they allowed me in. Uh, so that was very interesting. And uh, I then did a Bachelor of Arts um, part-time and uh, eventually ended up going, getting a Fulbright scholarship and going to Stanford University in the States and came back to South Africa and got married. And then with my wife, came to Britain, did my PhD at the University of Sheffield. So it all started really with my, my move to at 18 to a university in South Africa where I was opened up to a whole range of views and ideas that I I uh, just was unaware of at the time. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna say I, I can imagine that that was you know you're describing a, a very sort of like conservative upbringing, uh, and then you know going to that liberal university, going to that liberal space 
what what were some of the things that you just found surprising or jarring uh, during that time? Oh, uh, it, it was the attitude towards different races was 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 very different. Um, you know, the, I grew up in a society that was was racist and sexist and homophobic and uh, and very strongly so. I mean, and and then there was an environment where these things were considered not to be wrong. So that was a that was an extraordinary moment. I, I I listened to one of your podcasts on uh, where, where you mentioned growing up it was in Alberta. Is that right? Yeah, in Alberta. Yeah. yeah, and and you and you mentioned the kind of macho environment. I mean, th- that that resonates entirely with me. I mean, I grew up in that kind of environment where the boys played rugby and the you know you you, you didn't cry and you you were tough and and if you if you were effeminate or you were gay or anything, you took your life into your hands because you could get beaten yeah. up. Yeah. Uh, and this was very much the, 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 the just the accepted view of how the world was. Yeah, interesting, very interesting. And, and so, what you know, I, I have, I, I'm, I'm sure I have many questions about uh, you know what it was like to sort of grow up in an apartheid state and mm. and how that sort of shaped your your view of the world. So when you when you look back at that time, for you, what a what was that like? And if you can just unpack that a little bit, because I think most North Americans don't really have much of a context for what that experience is like. Right. So, so one of the areas, the philo- there were two areas of philosophy that I found very interesting. One was a philosophy of mind, but the other one was political philosophy. And I, I always felt that, whereas I, I would like to have done a PhD in philosophy of mind, it felt a little bit too esoteric and a little bit too indulgent, especially mm-hmm. when political philosophy was so important, given the kind of background I'd come from. So I kind of fell into doing political philosophy and, and in particular, the kind of Anglo-American theories of justice. So my PhD was on uh, a man called John Rawls and the and, and his uh, political liberalism, as it was called. And uh, I studied that. I did that at, at the University of Sheffield. And uh, when I finished that PhD, uh, I got a job in a in a politics department in Manchester, where I am today. Uh, my 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 little secret, of course, is that I, I'm in a politics department, having never done a politics course in my life, because I'm in a <laughs> philosophy section of politics. So yeah. it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a joke in my department that I you know I'm, I'm in a politics department, having never done politics. But nevertheless, I I, I do political philosophy and. Uh, what happened is while I was doing that, I got involved in issues about dirty hands and issues about evil. And this is what leads me towards the catastrophe stuff. Um, I was asked by IAI to give a talk on evil uh, last year um, and and to talk about dirty hands and so on. And then then they they, they kind of realized that, that I had an interest in this area, and hence my article, which they asked me about, uh, about a month ago, I think it was. Yeah, tell, tell tell us a little bit. Tell the listeners a little bit about your uh, your talk about evil, and so this, just let's just touch on that a little bit because I think that uh, I did read that article as well, and it's it's incredibly well written, and there's some very fascinating uh, ideas in there. But what if you could just sort of parse apart, just sort of piece apart the some of the pieces of what constitutes the philosophy of evil and and why we're sort of fascinated with that um, just at a high level. And then we can kind of work our way in from there. Well, some, some backgrounds probably necessary. Uh, discussions about evil have a, a very strong theological background, as you can well, well imagine. It arises in, in, in theological contexts where people talk about Satan and they talk about the devil. And, and about 40, 50 years ago, there was a, a, there were a group of philosophers which have been called the revivalists. It's nothing like you think, but it's there's no you know dancing. But they they want to revive this idea of a notion of evil because 
at that point within the, uh, let's say, the academic work, uh, unless you're in a theology department, notions of evil were considered to be uh, problematic because they were based on a, on a metaphysics that people thought they couldn't defend, a religious metaphysics of some kind. So what happened was you had the, the secular revival, and people started to try and understand what the term meant, but from a secular point of view. Uh, and the reason for that is because there's a recognition that in our society there needs to be some kind of term that captures those actions which are the very worst kinds of actions or those people are the very worst kinds of people from a moral point of view. The problem is how to do that without evoking some kind of metaphysics, which is problematic for many people. And this was done by looking at motives and looking at consequences. And uh, a great deal of people have been writing about this over the last 30 years. And the question then arises, well, can one give a concept of evil which covers all the various different ways in which evil has been discussed, or what they call the conceptions of evil? Uh, and one of the things that I wrote about, and I think I wrote about it in the paper you're referring to, is that it's my view that the concept of evil arises because we recognize that there are certain things called the great evils which will affect our lives in ways which will make any kind of decent existence impossible. Hmm. And this is not because of a particular view we hold or a particular position we hold. It's because of the way we are as human beings. We require food. We require um, shelter. We require love. We require all those kinds of things that make any life minimally decent and worth living. And this is true of all sentient beings, not just of human beings, by the way. I mean, animals have the same kind of issues. Uh, and it seemed to me that a, a definition of evil would be one where we think that those acts that undermine those essentials for a decent life, which bring about the great evil, so to speak, or for those people that continuously and wantonly and, I suppose, uh, joyously bring about those kinds of things, we refer to as evil persons. And that would be the central notion, the central concept of what evil is. It's that, that warping, if you like, of the moral landscape. Hmm. And, and on that basis, you can have very many different versions of what you understand by evil. Some people will stress motives. Some people will stress consequences. Some people will stress that the two have to come together. Um, and so it goes on. And, and that's what the debate is about. You know. And some people will say that you can have notions that are evil acts, but they're separate from evil persons. Some people think you can have evil persons who don't necessarily commit evil acts. And so the two don't necessarily overlap 100%. There's some issues going on there. Hmm. Uh, so that, that, that's essentially what I was trying to say in that article, is that there, there is a definition of evil, uh, a concept of evil, which we can all hold on to, whether we're religious or whether we're secular. And it's about that issue. It's about how do we prevent the great evils from being perpetrated on us so it prevents us living decent lives. Yeah, it's a controversial view, I should add. Uh, yeah, from the podcast, uh, someone like Terry Eagleton and uh, doesn't buy that story, and Susan Naiman, who's a very, very famous uh, philosopher writing on evil, also doesn't buy the story. So uh, how it's come? Kind of a juicy debate, but uh, uh, how, how how come? What's what's the what, what's their sort of like counter argument or counter perspective that they that well, causes them to not believe in this? Well, I think, I think Naaman's more an historical philosopher in the sense that she thinks that the, the notion or the definition of it changes in the historical through time. So she wrote a book all about how evil, uh, what evil meant with, uh, in the time of the Lisbon earthquake in 1700 and something. I've forgotten the exact date. And, uh, and then she goes through all the various ways in which, uh, different times and places have understood evil. My claim is that all of those can be reduced to an understanding of those great evils in some way or another. 
Terry Eagleton is a, is a literary theorist, uh, and he's much more interested in the kind of Freudian, uh, and, 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 and postmodern and modernist versions of what's going on rather than the philosophical foundations of it. So that's where the, where the, where the disagreements tended to, to arise. Interesting. And so, so it's less about, it's less about sort of a philosophical understanding of, of the concept of original sin. You, you're, I think what it, you know, I hear you sort of saying is like removing that metaphysical or theological ideal and being able to ask the question of where does evil actually come from within our psychological makeup. Is that roughly accurate? Well, <clears throat> the, the idea of, the, of a general concept is that it should be able to incorporate the religious views as well. So mm. if you're a deeply religious person, you would think that the idea of religious uh, of original sin becomes part of one of those great evils that make a decent life impossible. So it, it, it doesn't automatically exclude a religious view at all. It, it does encompass it in some way. But what it, what it tries to do is to find what it is exactly that we find so problematic about evil. Why is that word... And, and here's where uh, the distinction is qualitatively different from saying just mere wrongdoing. Mm. When I say someone's evil, I'm saying something qualitatively different from that. They've just done something wrong. You can do things that are very, very wrong. But when you say someone's done something evil, you tend to want to bring it to a level that's qualitatively different in the sense that there's a different feel to it. There's a different worry about it. It's, it's something so horrific or so problematic. There's a kind of moral horror that comes from from witnessing evil that you don't get from witnessing wrongdoing. Now, if someone yeah. steals your laptop, it's wrong. They can compensate you. you. You you're annoyed with them. You tell them they shouldn't do it again. You might even punish them, but you don't feel like they're warping the moral landscape. You don't feel that they're destroying something that that makes the boundaries of civilized life possible. Uh, whereas evil does something much more than that. You you, you can't compensate proper evil, whereas you mm. can compensate wrongdoing. Not all mm. wrongdoing, but but a lot of wrongdoing. So okay. it's a qualitatively different kind of notion that we're trying no, to No, I love I love that distinction. I think that's that's uh not only very important, but I think that gives a lot of context for for the listeners. I'm curious if you can just maybe unpack a little bit more around what the great evils are. You you sort of like are 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 they are there very specific examples that you have or and maybe you can just lay out some of the things that that we might experience on a regular basis as those great evils. Okay, so 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 I, I, I've actually taken the term from uh, a, a, a man called Stuart Hampshire, who's a philosopher that, that wrote. Uh, he, he's passed away now, but he, he was writing in the in the thirties and forties and fifties. Uh, and uh, the, the great evils can be either natural or human made or man made. Natural great evils would be earthquakes and typhoons and hurricanes and tsunamis and you know, starvation because of drought or those kind of things. Things that make life unbearable. Mm -hmm. Man-made or human-made evils are those things like torture and murder and um, uh, genocide and constant violence, imprisonment without any relief. Th those kinds of lovelessness, uh, removal of people's friends, destroying their homes, those are the kinds of things that would be great evils that prevent any kind of decent life. And unfortunately, we see a great deal of that around the world at the moment, um, far, far too much. Uh, and uh, so many people get away with it. I mean the kind of catastrophe that's been Syria over the last uh, eight or nine years, the catastrophe that was happening in, in Burma and uh, parts of what's going on in, in all parts of the world. You, you find governments or regimes impose those kind of man-made great evils. And, and of course, natural evils occur all the time. We're in the middle of one at the moment, right? Coronavirus. Yep. Yep. Uh, the, yep. the tragedy of so many people dying, uh, suffering, 
pain they're causing, they, they, they've, they've been caused, the loss to their families. I mean, it's horrendous, right? And uh, we're just seeing a bit of it. I mean, most of it's hidden away from us most of the time, but you, you get a sense of it. I, I've just heard that my daughter's friend's father just died from coronavirus. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it reaches out everywhere and uh, yeah. it's entirely arbitrary as well. Which is which is which is which is incredibly frightening for many people because you simply don't know whether your your luck's going to be there or not when you when you when you're confronted with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I'm curious. You know, you talk. I like the distinction between the sort of natural great evils and the man-made great evils. I'm wondering if you can just unpack a little bit more or go deeper into this this concept of man-made evils because I think when the average person sort of is met with evil that is man-made you know like real real true evil and and witnesses it in some context it is it is it is and can be something that seems unfathomable because we are generally so far away from it right the average person especially here in north america and in first world countries we we don't see genocide we don't see child mutilation we don't see these types of atrocities and so to to witness it in some i mean we're very insulated right or or isolated from and protected from things that we would constitute as evil so what what would you say is and i'm trying to just formulate this question but but what does philosophy sort of point to in terms of man-made philosophies uh, man-made evils and and what are some of the groundworks that that allow certain types of people and certain subsets of people to do these atrocities to move into uh sort of embodying some of these great evils yeah, those are those are good questions and very difficult to answer. Um, yeah. uh, I think some of your questions are best answered by a psychologist rather than a philosopher, because mm-hmm. you're you're asking about what kind of motivations and intentions would certain people have and why they have them. Um, philosophy tends not to be, uh, you know, very very much use on that kind of uh, issue. They they're more interesting questions about what is that we're talking about. You know, how do we define the concept rather than uh, what is the actual empirical basis or what are the reasons why people act the way they do? But, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, human beings are, are an extraordinary uh, species. They really are. They, uh, we, are, we are, I like to think between the, the angels and, and the apes, right? We, we, we have the ability to be fantastic and, and extraordinary and, and, and do things which are, are, are just wonderful. I mean, we see this right now around the world with, with the coronavirus. I mean, in Britain, we are people that are doing heroic things all the time. Uh, there's just, you might even heard of the story of this 99 year old captain who's just raised, I think the last time I looked was 17 million quid for the, for the National Health Service. Um, and he did this by walking around his garden, doing a hundred laps of his garden and, uh, he, you know, with a, with a, with a Zimmer frame. Walker. So extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. And at the same time, we also hear that on the internet, there's been more attempts at trying to defraud people, sell them things they don't need, put out fake news and so on, than, than can be imagined. I mean, Google just removed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these things as a matter of fact. So you, you've got this huge dichotomy. You've got, you've got the, the angel and the beast sitting in the one person. Why? Well, that's... That that is a question that we could talk about <laughs> for the next ten years, right? It's it's you know it depends on your view of of of, of human nature and all the rest of it. Uh, my my take on this is that we tend to get better when our institutions get better, and when our institutions make us behave in better ways. 
Um, and this is this is why evil institutions uh, are a particular worry, like the Nazis and the, the Khmer Rouge and so on. It's because they take people who could have gone either way and they push them in the way of evil and to act in ways that are, are, are very evil. Uh, at any rate, uh, what I wanted to say was that there's there's a, a man you might know called Stephen Pinker. He's a Canadian, so you might have heard of him. He wrote a book about how things aren't as bad as we think they are. In fact, in most parts of the world, things are improving massively. And I think he's right. He's got the he's got the the, the charts and the stats and the, the figures to show that we are immeasurably bit well, not immeasurably, but enormously better off than we were, say, a hundred years ago. If you think about racism, if you think about homophobia, if you think about sexism, if you think about violence, if you think about all these kind of education of women, all the kinds of um, um, indicators that you want to use, we are better off today, less poverty, uh, less extreme poverty than we were a hundred years ago. And we tend to forget that, that as we get more into um, holding up institutions like democratic institutions that are accountable and the rule of law, we get better at this and we don't, we don't accept the kinds of horrors that we used to accept 100, 200 years ago. We don't. But there are parts of the world where that still goes on, uh, unfortunately, and we've seen this in Syria for for years, and we we see it in parts of Asia, and we see it in parts of Africa. Uh, we even see it in parts of of, of you know, inner cities and places uh, in the country. But but the, but for a large number of us, especially you and I, uh, talking from the protected you know Vancouver and Manchester, and we we live lives that were unimaginable hundreds of years ago. Unimaginable, not only from the technology, but from the safety point of view, from the longevity point of view, from the health point of view, from all those kinds of we we live unimaginably good lives. We just forget that, uh, and we shouldn't. Yeah. Um, so going back to your question off that long detour. No, no, it's great. It's great. Um, I, I, uh, why people act that way has got to do with a whole range of um, issues to do with the institutions they're in, what their aspirations are, their motives, their upbringing, their values. It's a very, very complicated story, yeah. and, I, and I, I don't think anyone's got a particular handle on that. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of my, one of my favorites, I'm a, I'm a big Jungian, uh, psychology buff for lack of a better word, I guess you could say, um, my, my mentor, I'm fortunate enough to have worked with someone and mentored with someone who actually got the chance to study with Jung and Jung sort of had this philosophy that, that a lot of what we create externally is an internal manifestation right that we that we first have a psychological construct or archetype and then that that replicates itself externally and you know i think one of the interesting things and i just want to touch on one more piece here with within this concept of of evil and the greater evils that you're talking about and then i, I do want to talk about uh you know apocalyptic thinking and and, the, and uh, this sort of a focus that we have um on catastrophe and on apop up on apocalypse but how do the how do systems sort of like uh, government based systems and theological uh, systems play into the the sort of uh, this this construct or this concept that you're talking about of the great great evils because they seem to infiltrate some of these systems and then those systems become the conduit for propagating that evil. So can you speak to that a little bit? Well, well, I think that's right. I, I, you, you know, in, individuals can do terrible things, but nothing like institutions can do once they once they get hold of people and organize them in a certain way. Um, I mean, that said, uh, you know, the 
in in Rwanda when they when the when they had that that terrible genocide. I mean, that was done with machetes and, and individuals hacking other people to death. But 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 even so, if if you want truly to see uh, the kind of horrors that can be inflicted on people, it's through institutions and through states that do that. And uh, uh, states are not meant to do that. They're, they're meant to be there to protect protect us. That's the rationale for 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 governments and states. I mean. If, if your government can't protect you, then its its main reason for existence comes into question. Uh, you, you'll know from from the oath that the American president takes, the very first promise is to protect the American people from threats, both internal and external. That's their very first duty as as president of the United States, and that's probably true of the, the British Prime Minister and, and and every other leader in the world. Um, sometimes, what happens to those institutions they get taken over by people who use them for and malignant reasons. And then, of course, the entire force of the state gets turned to the wrong purpose. And it's very, very hard to stop that unless you've got a very powerful civil society. And 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 in countries like Britain and United States and Canada and France, the time has there has been time to build those kinds of institutions, you know, religious institutions, civil institutions of various kinds, which which act as a stop against the worst kinds of excesses of a government. And the people just will not accept that their democratic rights be taken away. It's unthinkable in Britain that a prime minister who lost the election will say, I'm just not going. It's unthinkable. Yeah. I mean, there are just too many, uh, too many other institutions that would prevent him from doing that. And apart from the fact that, that no one thinks in politics that's what you do in a country like Britain, except for the extremes, on, which no one takes very seriously. Yeah. Uh, that's not true of, of many countries around the world, as you know. People get into power and they just won't leave. And you yeah. see certain strong men, you know, in, in various parts of the Middle East and various other who just don't want to leave for all sorts of reasons. Well, I think I think I've I've actually had that thought, you know, with within the United States, you know, yep. with I think a lot of people have had that thought of like, you know, looking at the at the current system and and I, I one of the things that I think that's interesting about what you're saying is is you know, we often don't listen to the extremes until the extreme gains enough power that it starts to become a little bit more mainstream. And I think that's what we've started to see in, you know, different parts of of the world where these extremes have maybe not had a main stage platform, but all of a sudden uh, through media and, and, you know, different forms, they've, they've now gained a lot more power. And so they're less, they're less extreme and they're much more sort of socially present. But I think a lot of people have had that, that, that sort of thought with, you know, Donald Trump, yeah. Uh, in the upcoming election is like, you know, even if he loses, you know, really clearly loses, even if he does, he's going to leave, he's going to leave office because he seems to have a, a very strong base of people that are open, very openly sort of saying, you know, we'll, we'll do whatever it takes to keep him in power. Yeah. So I, I think things like that are, are quite, uh, qu- quite interesting, but in, in terms of where philosophy comes in, with this question of the great evils, especially the evils that we create from a, a human perspective, what what is philosophy trying to answer in in terms of sort of piecing apart evils? Is it is it trying to answer how do we uh, start to diminish our our uh, creation of human evils, or is it just seeking to understand how those evils function so that we can better create systems and institutions that move away from that? I think I think I think, I think it's partly the latter. Um, okay. Where we try, we try and understand what is this evil that we're talking about, and 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 how do we identify it, and how do we prevent it if it, if, if it arises. So I, I wrote a paper called "Political Evil," which I, uh, which is in a collection on evil. I can't remember the name of the book offhand, uh, 
And uh, my claim there is that um, evils can be uh, great when their effect is to change the way in which we understand the moral landscape. So when you, when the, the moral landscape tends to be for most people that you ought to be good, you ought to do things that provoke, to, to, to support life. You should treat people well, equally, if possibly can. Uh, there should be people, human beings should be given a certain kind of respect and so on. So, so what happens in a, in a case like the Nazis is they come in and they start telling you that there's certain groups that are excluded from that. And then they, they bring about an ideology that starts to, to warp the idea of how you should act towards them. And here's an example. Um, uh, there, there, there are reported cases of, of, um, Nazi officers who were engaged in genocide in, in Poland and they got orders from the, the, uh, the, the headquarters that they were not to steal from the Polish peasants while they were doing their genocide. They were outraged that the headquarters would think of them as thieves, but they didn't realize they were engaged in genocide. They were going out and killing men, women, and children and dumping them in ditches. And, and that's what I mean by the warping of it. They, they, what, what should be forbidden, what should never even be seen as a possibility in terms of the way you act, became absolutely acceptable and normal because of the warping. And, and, wow. and that's the kind of institutional thing we're talking about. And the same thing happened in Rwanda. It starts with talking about people as cockroaches or, or viruses or whatever the case may be, and it doesn't take very long before you, you've got a, a, a movement seeing these people as less than human and you can kill them and all those kind of things. And uh, we, we, we see this very often. Uh, the dehumanization of others, um, and uh, there seems to be something about the human psyche that when they're in a group, uh, you can you can sway people to do things that they wouldn't ordinarily do as individuals. You see this in football matches, for example. People act in ways they would never act if they were individually uh, sitting there. They, they get into a group and they suddenly become a bit crazy, uh, especially amongst men. Especially amongst men, but not only, but especially amongst men, they, they, they'll they'll act in ways that are really worrisome and problematic, uh, and not them typically. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, Jung, Jung Jung would say that that's that's our shadow, right? That there's a there's a part of our personal unconscious that, that's that houses a, a lot of our our individual or collective pain and a lot of our individual insecurities and and that that's the part that can get sort of manipulated and triggered right that people can play off of uh being able to dehumanize other people as a means of releasing the shadow internally psychologically within people and then pointing it at at a sort of target and giving it a, a sort of mission to make itself feel better and then the ego can sort of justify it because it's you know has a very unconscious patterning that that's uh that's being revealed but I, it's interesting what you're talking about because you're you're sort of pointing at a an erosion of of our moral compass you know like the example that you gave is, is so fascinating it's like how could you think of us as thieves while they're you know while they're exactly. killing people and leaving them in ditches it's like but wait <laughs> like exactly. so yeah, I mean, it's, that's such an interesting. That's such an interesting you, piece. You, you sometimes find this with with organized criminals as well. I mean, they they have an honor system and the way they treat each other, and yet they'll go off and torture people and kill people and, and think that's perfectly acceptable within the the framework. Which are, the framework's been warped. They're, 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 yeah. they're misunderstanding what's going on there in a very serious way. So there, there's a. I, I wanted to mention that that the Jungian story uh, explains the psychology of that quite nicely, but uh, there. There are kind of evolutionary theories about why we are the way we are. We began as groups 
where we had in-groups and out-groups, and it was very important to be part of that in-group for protection, for all the kinds of necessities to live. And so the in-group had necessarily an out-group they were fighting against. And, and so you see that kind of behavior coming in when we, when we, when we see football matches and we, we see nations fighting each other and uh, neighborhoods and all the rest of it, gangs and so on. So yeah, it, I think it's I, deep hardwired into us in some yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that I think that's where sort of like epigenetics comes into the conversation, right? The idea that we have certain things passed down within us. And I think some of the research that I've, that I've read really shows that, uh, that trauma passed down can be, play a huge part of that. But I think part of the piece that you're talking about that's so fascinating is just our, our sort of evolution. Even if you took the last few thousand years, we, we did used to, you know, sort of roam in bands of under 150 people. And like you're saying, there was the, the in-group and the out-group, and there was a lot of fighting between that for resources and, and vying of territory and, and whatnot. And so it, it kind of is in some ways hardwired into us to want to have a group of people that we are a part of and a group of people that we're against. And, you know, it, it does philosophy at, at some point hope to answer the question of how we move past that? Or is that too much of like a, a sort of <laughs> esoteric uh, aspiration? There, 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 there never is an answer to a question that says, does philosophy do X? Because philosophy yeah. is a myriad number of different views of people that, that vastly disagree with each other. But, yeah. but I mean, some, some philosophers, uh, a great deal of philosophers, I suppose I'm one of them, looks for kind of universal... Um, moral claims, which mm. are applicable to everybody and which can bind us all together. You know, when we talk about theories of justice, we're not talking about theories of justice for the United States or for Canada. Or for, we're talking about theories of justice. What would a just society look like for anybody? And we have certain kind of assumptions about human beings which we take to be universal, uh, that they need to be free, they need to be equal, they need to be given certain kinds of self-respect, certain kinds of resources. These are the kinds of things that, that if you like, universalistic philosophers uh, seek to do. There are relativists. Who, who say, well, no, it's actually much more a case of uh, the, the, the customs and the culture that you come from. You know, that, that's where your, your values will, will develop and, and, and be nurtured. And uh, that's, that, they, they differ from, from place to place and time to time. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, an ongoing, it's an ongoing fight, right, that, 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 that philosophers have uh, been going on for, for millennia and will go on for millennia. It's not, it's yeah, not going to be resolved anytime yeah. soon. So, um, but yeah, so, so, uh, uh, I, I think philosophy, its main concern, at least the, the branch of philosophy I do, because there, there are two branches, analytic philosophy, Anglo-American, and then there's European or, or, uh, continental philosophy, uh, analytic, analytical philosophy wants to get clear on what we're talking about most of the time. It's trying to understand the phenomenon uh, through uh, conceptual analysis or through uh, thought experiments, trying to understand what it means when we say these kinds of things. What what would be a plausible theory? What would be a plausible concept that we could use or a plausible principle that we could follow uh, when it comes to morality? Is it about, for example, if you're a consequentialist, is it about making sure or good actions are those that bring about good consequences? Or is it, if you're a deontologist or a duty theorist, is it about doing the right kind of duties or following the right kinds of principles. And, hmm. and they're virtue ethicists who say, no, it's about having the right kinds of virtues. And, and so they all, they all have their, their arguments about where we need to go to, to, to have the right kind of moral life. Hmm. Um, and it gets very, you know, you, you can spend the whole of your life debating these things quite easily. Yeah. 
without ever coming out. You know, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. No, I was gonna. I was gonna say. I've always, I've sort, I've always sort of envisioned uh, philosophers getting together. Almost, almost. I can't remember who said it. it. Was something like when philosophers get together, the last thing that they talk about is philosophy. And I can't, I can't remember whose whose quote that is. But I was like, I don't think that that's true. <laughs> the last yeah, thing that yeah. they want to talk about is philosophy. Yeah. But I, I almost imagine it as, uh, you know, as astrophysicists getting together, trying to deconstruct objective reality in a way you know and, and yeah. being able to sort of piece apart like take take apart the constructs that make up our reality so that we have a more clear picture yeah. of the space that we're actually living in and yeah. you know i think one of the interesting things that i that i really like about your your work and just having read through some of it and not not being you know any sort of philosopher at, at all uh is that I, I really appreciate the the not only the angle that you've taken but the Almost, almost the a little bit of of talking about intersubjective realities in a way, like the how stories come into and how the systems of our stories play into uh, our fascination with certain aspects of life. So I think I think with that, I would I would love to sort of shift gears and talk about this idea of our maybe not obsession but our fascination with catastrophe and and apocalypse. And so maybe if you can just give give the listener a little bit of uh, a context for what brought you down this path in the first place. And then we can just unpack it a little bit. Okay. Uh, can I just say something about the distinction yeah. between philosophy and the telling of stories in the literature? Mm -hmm. Because I think that's important. I mean, um, there, there's a sense in which we are, are, are creatures that like stories much more than we like cold analytical arguments. Arguments don't move us in the same way as stories do. We we, we just are much better at, at being moved by by those kinds of things. Uh, and so, very often, literature is a little bit ahead of philosophy in, in what they see and what they what they try and bring about or what they try and express. And philosophers are trying to catch up all the time, trying to say, well, you know, there's people talking about something like dirty hands in this literature. What does it mean? How do we figure it out? What's the concept need? And then, and then we get into all this analytic stuff and we try and figure out what the necessary and sufficient conditions are and that kind of stuff. But literature's way ahead there. They've already decided they're going to talk about it in terms of stories and, and people understand that intuitively rather than from a, uh, an analytic point of view. Um, and, and this is why I think it's really important for philosophers to, to, to link on to stories because it's in those stories that you find the philosophical issues that they're going to actually try and deal with in a later stage. And for most people, philosophy is a very, very strange kind of activity. Mm -hmm. I, I like to think of it as a kind of, I suppose you would say, uh, an acceptable form of neurosis uh, mm -hmm. because you, you, you worry about things that most people don't worry about. You know, right. Uh, like, like, is there some? Why is there something rather than nothing? Who worries about that except philosophers? <laughs> right. It's a very bizarre kind of. I thing. mean, I mean, I feel like I've been I've been asking that question for a very long time. <laughs> right. Well, maybe, you're, maybe you're a philosopher deep inside, right? You, yeah. You, maybe. Maybe. I, I think um, I've always taken the psychological approach, but sorry, right. I can continue. I don't mean to interrupt. But, you. but there are also, I mean, you know, the, the questions of why be good. I mean, most people don't ask that question. They just say you need to be good, right? And uh, so philosophers are, in that sense, neurotic about about issues that most people aren't neurotic about, which is probably a good thing. Right? You don't want everyone wandering around thinking these kinds of things all the time. But, yeah. but so, so stories are, are, I think, a better medium for getting these kinds of issues across. So how did I end up there? Well, I, I started off uh, working on the problem of dirty hands, which is the issue of what happens when you're faced with moral choices where uh, you do, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. These are particular choices where 
you're required to do two things, but you can't do them together or they conflict. A uh, very famous example of this is the ticking bomb scenario, which many people don't like at all. But it, it's, it's a hypothetical example, which gives the, the story I need to tell you. So here, here it is, very, very briefly. You, you capture a person who's planted a bomb in Vancouver, and it's going to go off in 24 hours. They told you it's going to go off. They delight in the fact that it's going to go off, and they want to kill as many people as possible. You've got 24 hours to catch it. You can't evacuate the city. So one of the things you can do is you can interrogate this person, but he's not giving you any information. So the question, chief of police comes to you as your prime minister and says, look, we can torture the guy to get this information. Now, you know that torture is never acceptable. It's an abomination. Torture is not something you do as a civilized person. You just don't do that. On the other hand, remember we said earlier that your major and first duty as prime minister is the protection of the public. So you have a very powerful duty to find that bomb before people get killed. What do you do? You're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. If you torture him, you break some very important moral prohibition, and you might not get the information, right? That's another point, right? Right. If you don't torture him, the bomb goes off and people get killed. People say, why didn't you torture him? Why didn't you get that information? That was your job. So you're stuck with dirty hands. Whatever you do, your hands get dirty. So that's where I was, that, that was the kind of moral problem that I was trying to figure out. And that was led me to evil, by the way, because in, in talking about that, I started reading about evil people. And, uh, and that brings me also to the, the issue about why we're interested in, in things that are dark, like the apocalypse, like uh, murder, like evil. And, and, and this was just part of that whole project that, that just came up at the time. So it, it came in that kind of strange route towards where, where uh, I am now. Yeah, incredible. And so can you can you just maybe unpack a little bit about what our sort of fascination is with apocalypse and, and what the construct, why the construct actually plays such an important role within our culture and our society? Because I, I think one of the things that your that your paper did that I really appreciate is it, it breaks down um, not not only why we're drawn to apocalyptic thinking or, or catastrophic thinking, but the ramifications of that construct within our culture and our society. So it seems to me that there are a number of ways of thinking about it, but one of the ways of thinking about it is to say, well, we're interested in, in apocalypses and, and horror and those kinds of things because we're kind of hardwired to be so. It's, 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 it's in our interest to be interested in those things because those are the kinds of things that, that cause us a great deal of harm if we're not. It's similar to the argument about the concept of evil. You know, these kind of things that will destroy the kinds of lives we want to live. So there, there's an interest in that. And, and it's not surprising that if you watch the news or if you um, if you go out and talk to people in the street, very often bad news is told to you very quickly because that's the kind of thing that, that we need to know to, in order to be able to survive. But that's not the only why, reason why we're interested. I mean, that's one of the major reasons that push us that way. The other is that it gives us a way of trying to think through scenarios which generally, fortunately, we don't have to face very often, if ever. And these are scenarios where we'll be tested in a way that is pretty terrifying. You know, we'll be asked to to do things which ordinarily we would think of as unacceptable. You know, sacrifice somebody to save somebody else. Um, be ruthless uh, you know, to save your own child, allowing others, and those kinds of things. And we we watch this in a way to see what kind of virtues people would need, what kind of uh, uh, what kind of a character they would have in order to survive in these kinds of extreme circumstances, and we 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 also kind of testing ourselves against what we think would be the situation. I mean, it, it also gives us some kind of a 
uh, we're kind of fascinated by what these people are facing. Uh, you know, if you watch Mad Max or you 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 watch all these kind of apocalypse types uh, films, we're, we're kind of pretty horrified by what these people are, are going through. And at the same time, kind of fascinated to see what they do and how they're going to work their way through it. I didn't mention in the article that those those stories or films which don't have a redemptive ending hmm. tend not to be as popular as those that do because we want the people to win through. We want to see how they do it. We want to see how they're going to succeed in these kind of extreme situations. So there's part of that that's going on as well. We, we, we're we kind of trying to figure out what would happen in those extreme situations. And then there's the, the cathartic effect of it all. You know, by Not very far away from us, from our minds, we know that disaster is possible. Uh, you know, you get up in the morning, you make a coffee, you take your kids to school, you get to work, you're involved in the minutiae of what you're doing. It's a, it's, it's, you, don't, you don't lift your head up to think about these things, but you know that things can go very seriously wrong. Who would have thought four or five months ago we'd be sitting in a you know, coronavirus pandemic, right? Um, and and epidio- epidemiologists uh, say, look, you know, their worry is that imagine if this virus was not killing, say, 1% or 2% of the population, but, say, 40%, 50% of the population with the same kind of infection rate. It would be a, a civilization extincting, extinction event. So, so we we know these kind of things can happen, and uh, uh, it's a kind of cathartic thing to watch it somewhere else. So, uh, it, we we can feel the emotions, but in a safer space. Uh, and we do this with with tragedies. I mean, it, it's been done with Greek tragedies all the way back, right through the Shakespearean tragedies. We watch the collapse of a person's life and the tragedy and all the suffering around them, in some sense, in a cathartic way to to learn and to. And, 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 and to feel the emotions without actually having been there. Mm-hmm. I think it's something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I would I would agree 100%. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about about catastrophe and ap- apocalypse is, is that we seem to be drawn to it from a sense of almost like we're trying to find how we would react in those moments from a, from a psychological standpoint, but almost that there's some some skewed version some shadow version of our potential that we that we seek in those moments because it's it's in those moments of fight fight or flight that that we are truly tested right and i think that there's something within us that's constantly craving that test you know that that's wanting to reaffirm itself and wanting to reaffirm that it sort of has what it takes to navigate those circumstances, because I think when when people, I mean, you referenced Twenty Eight Days, which is a great movie uh, in in the uh, in the article, and you know, I think when people watch those types of films, they usually walk away thinking, "Well, what would I have done in that situation? And could I have made it through? And you know, do I have the skill sets?" And you know, I I, I, re- I remember friends uh, watching those types of movies and, and coming out and saying, "Like, do you think I could survive in that environment?" And I, I think all of those all of those primal uh, questions within us kind of get stirred up, yeah. but within the context of of society, within the context of you know governing bodies and and religions and you know work environments, how does how does catastrophe and apocalypse fit into some of those structures, and what what role do you feel like it starts to play within those environments? Oh, I'm not sure how to answer that. I, I, I'm pretty sure that in some religious views, there there is an end of time that that where where things will will um, have an ap- apocalyptic ending. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, depending on who you are and how your religious views go, you see this as either something to look forward to or not. I don't know. It all depends. Um, but uh, government 
yeah, gov- gov- governments governments have a, a real problem here yeah, because there are all sorts of things that could be apocalyptic, which you could defend against, but there's a very small chance that will happen. Think of meteorites coming to strike the Earth. That would cause the kind of apocalyptic situation. You know, if something very large hit the Earth, it would cause something like a nuclear winter, and then the crops would die, and then you know, all this kind of what do governments do about that? What do institutions do about that? Well, uh, it's hard to know because uh, there's so many things that can actually cause uh, these kinds of events to happen. But they're all they're all things that are very unlikely to happen. And they, we, we, we don't think about them very much. And we, we hope that somebody is thinking about them. I think Bill Gates, I might be wrong about this, but you correct me. I think he's been warning about something like the coronavirus for, for a very long time. And saying that, you know, look, we've got all these things in place to to prevent nuclear war and the nuclear catastrophe, but we've got almost nothing in place to to deal with viruses and stuff. And they're much more likely to happen. And nobody really thought that was a, a you know a reason to to get much more prepared than than we were. And you can see the results, right? It's yeah. it's, it's pretty 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 dramatic. Um, so I, I don't know. Gov- gov- governments governments always face the problem, especially democratic governments of They've got short-term electoral cycles, but long-term issues to deal with. And long-term issues tend not to be popular. You know, things like climate change, things like defending against viral attacks or viral catastrophes. These things require sacrifices now without you seeing the benefits of it. And so electorally, it's very difficult to convince a, a, your electorate that this is what you want to spend resources on now. Yeah. Um, and so... We always face this kind of short-term, long-term difficulty with with democratic politics. If you're a dictator, it's much easier, but then you've got yeah. other problems, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, then there's other moral questions there, but other yeah. moral questions to deal with. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think, I think, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because it, you know, Bill Gates had given a TED talk, I think, about three or four years ago, right. I, I believe, three, three to five years ago, where he actually brought this, you know, question forward and had some simulations and data, um, basically predicting what it would look like for something like something similar to coronavirus uh, rolling out and basically sounding the alarm saying exactly what you're saying, which is, you know, we don't have any systems in place to, to actually be able to, on a global scale, uh, properly handle this type of situation. Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting because now, now he seems to be sort of uh, being spun as this, as this bad guy now in the media uh, in certain in certain media forms, sort of being said like, oh, he's trying to create, you know, mass control, and he wants to put microchips into people through the vaccinations and mm-hmm. and all of these pieces. And so, when when you talk about c- catastrophe and, and apocalyptic thinking and, and just the construct itself, how does misinformation play play into these these constructs? Yeah. Well, I, my, my guess is that uh, for very many people. Uh, Thinking about a catastrophe is just too difficult, so you 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 tend to not want to hear the the truth. I mean, there, there, there are many people wandering around still now saying that the the, the COVID nineteen isn't isn't anything like people claim it is. It's all a it's all a plot, either by some government or some organization, uh, to try and bring us this, that, or the other. Right. So there's some conspiracy theories you were talking about earlier. Human beings are very susceptible to conspiracy theories. It gives them a sense of control. It gives them a sense of understanding what's going on in the world that sometimes is not understandable in the way they want it to be understandable. Uh, we just don't know enough about the coronavirus to be able to give all the answers. So let's find a way of getting control by, by changing the, the narrative. So conspiracy theories uh, and, 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 and the, the, 
warping of news and all that kind of thing is very often a case that occurs when people face the possibility of of something that is terrible. You find it with, uh, there's a phenomenon of Holocaust revisionists who just simply will, will deny the fact of the Holocaust because the thought that this was done is so horrendous that for many of them, there's got to be some other explanation, right? Despite all the documentation, all the witnesses, all, they, they just, just don't want to accept it. And, and you find this with a whole range of other things. Uh, airplanes that go missing, for example. There might be a, an answer we don't know about yet, uh, but people start thinking there's conspiracies and all that kind of stuff because that's, that, that's the way in which we, we find some way of making sense of the world around us when it's very scary and frightening. Mm. Uh, we, we are creatures that are very, very good at putting cause and effect together. Even when we can't, and that's when we start making crazy decisions. It's it's interesting because one of the things that I that one of the things that that sort of caught my eye about what you talk about with with apocalypse and, and catastrophe was was this. It almost feels like a collective a collective questioning of what we experience individually. Like, and I'm I'm curious. I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of go in on this a little bit further, but I'm curious to get your sense of: Do you feel like catastrophe or or apocalyptic thinking helps us to better understand why we're here in some capacity oh that's a good question um and i and maybe i should give some maybe i should give some context for this is like you know i think about something like the myth of sisyphus right like whether you know whether the ultimate question is 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 is, you know should we commit suicide and i know that's a very dark question but but at the same time you know the 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 breakdown there is being able to look at at something that is almost the sort of darkest form of our of our psyche, right? Like, should should we end our lives? And sort of looking at death as a means to inform our life. And I, and I'm curious if if this this construct and this idea of of catastrophe and our fascination with it in some way is helping to inform our collective movement. Right. Um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, um, my 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 guess is that it. it uh, Thinking about apocalypse and so on uh, talks to, as you say, a part of us that is that is constantly concerned about what will happen if the the, the, the structures and the and the and the people and the values and everything around us collapse. Mm. Um, and it, it does give us a window into that, as, as I try to say in the article. It gives us some sense of of, of looking at the unthinkable uh, mm. and, and the unsayable. But at least from a distance where you are, are relatively safe and can pull back if it's too horrible. So yeah. you, you can dip your toe in, so to speak. If it's, the water's too chilly, you can pull your finger, or too hot, you can take your foot out. Um, which you can't do in an actual pandemic, right? We, we can't yeah. decide it's the end of it. But you can do it with movies. You can do it with literature. And literature enables us to expand our understanding and our views and, our, and, and, and deal with our fears and our, our desires and our concerns and those kind of things. But I, I don't know. I don't know the the answer really to your question. I think it's yeah. a, it's a very difficult question to answer. Yeah, it's 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 very it's I mean it's a it's a big one, but I'm I guess I guess where I was coming at it from was, you know, I think in the article you talked about how when we look at things like catastrophe can help us sort of play through moral conundrums, mm-hmm. you know, and and weigh how we would respond in those moral conundrums. And so can you maybe just speak to that a little bit more? Because I think that's yeah. that's a really interesting uh, yeah. part of what you wrote about that I think is very applicable for most yeah. people. So so for people living in, in stable uh, contemporary societies like you and I, uh, it's very unlikely that you're ever going to have to decide whether to kill someone or not. 
Um, very unlikely. Hopefully never will happen. Yeah. Uh, it's also very unlikely you're going to have to go and steal food from somebody else who's starving or it, you, you might not have to you know, save your child and let another child die in the process. So uh, those are the kinds of things, fortunately, and that's why we live in the societies we live in and want to perpetuate them and bring them worldwide is because we don't have those kinds of choices. But we do also understand that there could be circumstances where those choices suddenly are thrust upon us. And, and, and then the question is, what, what, is, what do I do in those kind of moral conundrums? How, how would I respond? Where do my values actually lie? Would I be a person that says, I'm, I'm never prepared to take food from people who are starving, even if it means I starve myself, which is pretty heroic. Most people think, well, I'm not sure I'm up to that. Would I be prepared to sacrifice my life for somebody else's life? Well, many people think, well, maybe, maybe, but I'm not sure I would do it if, if it actually came to it, came to it. So it's those kinds of issues that become much more stark. It's the, it's on the boundaries of life and and the and those terrible decisions that you have to make, which fortunately we don't have to make very often, if ever. Right? Uh, they suddenly become prevalent and plentiful and 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 present, and 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 there we we get a, a, a sudden insight into the kind of moral fiber we have and the moral values we have, and what's really important to us. What's really important? Is it family? Is it a universal value? Is it society uh, that we support? What is it that really matters to us? And it's nothing that gets tested to the extreme when you when you have those kinds of conditions. Huh? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because it, it sounds as though what you're saying is that we we sort of play these almost like war game simulations in our in our head in our mind or you know through literature or through movies so that we can try and and self-assimilate a sense of morality within us of like where we stand from a moral compass perspective is that is that roughly accurate so, sounds about right yeah it sounds about right that that we 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 don't really know what's important to us until we're really tested yeah and then, and then it becomes plain you know yeah my children really are important to me yeah, much more important than you, for example, or yeah, him, yeah. or somebody else. Yeah. Really or I really do value my life more than I value that principle, which says be fair to people, or you know, whatever the case may be, right? And and you know, there were people during uh, the Second World War that risked their lives to save people who were being persecuted, and when they were asked why, they said, "Well, it just is a case that people should not be treated this badly, and I had to help them," and they. Yeah came to understand what was a core value for them. Other people who claimed to be humanitarians and so on, when the when push came to the shove, just let these people get killed or taken away. So, you know, you, you got tested under those conditions where your true values became evident. Hmm. Yeah. Do you feel like we, do you feel like in, in North American society or first, first world cultures that we are lacking that sort of test? And so we're seeking it in, in other places. I know we're sort of deviating from what you might normally sort of discuss or, or look into, but I'm, I'm curious about your perspective on that. Well, well, well there, there is, there, 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 I'm very reluctant to say that, you know, people in the United States or in Britain or wherever don't, don't have these kinds of tests or don't face these kinds of deep, because clearly many people do, right, yeah. in, in ways. But, but, but generally speaking, when you live in a society where things have been stable and calm and civilized for the last 40, 50, 60 years, you tend to become a bit complacent about values and what to expect. I read a shocking report, which I don't know if it's true, that there has been a sea change in the way in which the youth in America see the value of democracy. Uh, you know, in, 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 in past 
just passed just after the Second World War, something like 90%. I don't know the figures exactly, but it's very high. Thought that democracy was absolutely essential to the American uh, life. And now something like 25 or 30% of students say it's not, not essential. Now, I don't know if these figures are true, but if that is the case, I mean, that's pretty shocking. And it's, it's something like fish swimming in the sea. The water's all around them. They don't even notice it's there. Democracy's all around them. They're benefiting from all those kind of things. They don't even notice it because they've never had it removed in any kind of way or threatened in any kind of way. So what these things do is they, they raise the threat, if you like, in a, in a literary or a, a film environment where you can suddenly think, you know, this, this comfortable life I have in, in, in Manchester could all be taken away in an instant. Yeah. What would I do under those circumstances? Can you? Uh, I, in, I, we're 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 probably running out of time here soon, but uh, can you just talk a little bit about? You know, you touched on it before on conspiracy theories. I know this isn't sort of like a an yeah. a realm or like an area of expertise, but how conspiracy theories play into uh, catastrophe, you know, dialogue and narrative and, and the construct itself, because I, I I feel like it does play an important role, right? Conspiracy theories and and uh, misinformation, et cetera. Yeah. So, so, so usually what happens with conspiracy theories is that, uh, the event that's trying to be, that is to be explained occurs because there's some huge conspiracy of powerful people bringing it about. Hmm. Uh, it couldn't have been an accident. It couldn't have just happened. It couldn't have been, uh, something that was, uh, unfortunate. It had to have been, organized by some power who had the ability to manipulate everybody else. And what's more, they have the ability to silence those people so we never find out about it. It's never clear why the person who tells you about the conspiracy theory has the special information and why they haven't been silenced. But let's leave that aside, right? Uh, but, but nevertheless, they, they have this information. Now, it's, it's a very satisfying, as I said, theory to have because, A, it gives you a sense of what's going on and an explanation for everything. Conspiracy theories are, are theories that can never be falsified. Because whatever mm -hmm. you say as to oppose it, they have some explanation as to why that's not the case. So conspiracy theories about the US government taking down, you know, the World Trade Center. If you say, well, it would require thousands of people to say, well, these people have all disappeared or they've all been bought off or there were explosions. What about the planes? No, there were explosions that went off at the center. There's always some explanation they can bring about that says that's why it happened, because it was all manipulated by some cabal or some group of people that were enormously powerful. Many, many anti-Semitic theories arise from that kind of conspiracy theory. Many claims about, you know, secret rulers ruling the world and so on, all based on that kind of idea. And it, it, it seems to be something that human beings just find very attractive. A lot of human mm. beings. And again, it's because of the completeness of the explanation, I think. Uh, we, we're not very good at being able to, to leave things open without an explanation because we just simply don't know. We want an explanation. We, we have the kinds of brains that, that want the cause and effect to be brought together to make the explanation. And if we can't do that, we'll invent one because that yeah. makes us feel much better, right? And <laughs> that's when you get the conspiracy. And yeah. my, my biggest problem with conspiracy theories is that they've never really understood how organizations work. Most of the time, these organizations can't organize anything. They mess up most things that they try and do. Right. If you look at how governments work, they're usually making mistakes all the time. They can't organize the most basic things like getting testing done, never mind perpetrating some huge fraud, which nobody can ever find out about. So it, it's, it's, it seems hugely implausible most of the time when they run these theories. But they do have a very wide audience for them. And people 
do find them very satisfying, which, which again, is a psychological question. I don't know how to answer, but yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I, I appreciate your answer. Cause I, I mean, I always say like the brain is a pattern recognition machine. I had a gentleman on the show by the name of Bo Lotto, and he's one of the most prominent uh, neuroscientists and he looks at the, the neuroscience of change. And he was talking about how our, our brain will always try and pull us away from things that it doesn't, that it can't predict or understand. So any, anytime that we have informational gaps within our mind, our, our brain will try and fill in that gap, even if it means just making something up that's circumstantial or speculative or, or whatever. Um, but it, it is interesting because it, it seems this, this, this idea of, of, uh, you know, of conspiracy theory seems to play a, or misinformation at the very least, seems to play a, a very large role in, in apocalyptic thinking, right? In, in our, our sort of obsession with catastrophe. Um, but when it, when it comes to the current situation that we find ourselves in, I would love to get your, your perspective on uh, how, how people, maybe not how people have responded to it, but has it sort of, has it tracked with what you would predict about about uh, uh, our relationship to apocalypse, our relationship to, to catastrophe? Because this is one of the, the biggest global catastrophes that we've sort of experienced in a very long time. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I, I heard a gentleman named Eric Weinstein uh, on a podcast recently, and, and he's brilliant. And he was talking about how we've been in like the big nap, right? We've sort of been asleep since World War II. And, yeah. and this is sort of waking people up. So is this tracking with what you would expect? Or what surprised you about about this catastrophe that we find ourselves in the midst of right now? Well, I, I did, I did, I think I mentioned some of the things that that, that are interesting. One is that for the vast majority of people in this uh, situation, they turn out to be extraordinary, heroic, doing things that are amazing. Uh, you know, looking after people, putting their lives at risk, going around helping the elderly, uh, teaching children. You know, all, all the kinds of things that that, that usually a, a sense of community grows, which which would have been less likely before the coronavirus happened. But there's a there there is a a, a minority, but not insignificant minority that. They take advantage of this. They they immediately start to try and and sell people things they don't need, or try and uh, hack email accounts, or get into Zoom and try and destroy the system. You know, and 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 that seems to track for me the kind of thing about between the angels and the beasts. We we are this extraordinary species. We we, we can do so much good and we can do so much harm at the same time. And our job really, and, and this is partly what philosophers try and do, is to, is to give the framework, the moral framework, the institutional frameworks, where we can constrain our behavior and direct in directions where we will do good far more than we'll do bad. And, mm -hmm. and if possible, eliminate entirely that part of our uh, psyche or inclination that's going to bring about these terrible evils that we've been talking about. Uh, well said. Well said. So, so I guess with with that, uh, because this is this is an area that I'm I'm not you know I'm not versed in, which is which probably by this point for most of the listeners is pretty uh, pretty apparent because I'm usually pretty well versed in in all the guests that I have on the show. But I, I'm curious, like, what did we not talk about that you think is important around catastrophe and, and apocalypse? Because um, I feel like there's parts of of this conversation that I'm I'm missing in terms of the structure or the relevancy, et cetera. And so maybe I'll just hand over to you, uh, you know, what what you just like to share with the listener. No, I, I think I think we've covered quite a quite a comprehensive range of of, of things. Uh, I don't have anything new or, or specific to say. 
Uh, I think you've done a, a really great job just just asking the kinds of questions that need to be asked and and, and filling in. So uh, no, I, I don't have very much more to say. I'm afraid. All right. No, that's okay. That's okay. Anyway, so. Uh, that's good. That's good. I, I can I can walk away from this interview feeling like I've done my job. I'm I'm curious what's next for you. You know, you've you've written about evil catastrophe. What's what's next? What do you really want to dig into next in terms of your career and and? Well, uh, I'm, I'm I'm engaged in a couple of projects at the moment. I'm I'm completing a a, a manuscript on the dirty hands problem, which uh, is going to bring together lots of stuff that I've done over the last two decades. I've also got a, a book on the go, which is a particular conception of evil, which is um, my particular version of what I think evil acts and evil persons are. Mm. But but I've recently been working on just war theory uh, and issues to do with proportionality. I was involved in a, a study where we, we looked to see if experts were able to provide uh, the kind of data uh, which soldiers and, and commanders would need for how what level of casualties would be acceptable or, or proportionate in, in, in engaging in warfare. So I'm involved in a project on that as well at the moment. So uh, I, I'm busy, as you can see. Got lots of stuff yeah. going. Yeah. yeah, amazing, amazing. Well, when when the book and the manuscript or, or e- either one is out, I'd love to have you back on the show and, and yep. dig into that. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for uh, for joining me on the show today. If people want to learn more about you and, and your work, what's the best resource for I them to, to look go to my university website? They can okay. find stuff there. Yeah, that'll be great. Vincent. And and very nice meeting you. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, of course, of course. So for everyone that's out there listening, definitely head on over. Uh, we'll have the links in the show notes so you can find that uh, easily and quickly. Uh, don't forget to share this podcast episode with uh, someone that you think would be interested in it. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Mm-hmm.